Well, welcome everybody. This is the breakout on page 20. I want to welcome you again. If you're sticking in this room, go ahead and kind of smoosh together. If you're in one of those outside rows, it'll kind of be able to be together. Um, I hope you can hear and see us. I can't see you, and I can't see if you're smiling under your masks, no. but thank you for joining us. Um, my name is Dave. This is Megan. Uh, we are married. We thank you. We were going to do a secret handshake to start, but we didn't practice one. Thank you, front row. <laughs> um, we have four children uh, together, and as parents, at least at this stage of our lives, we read quite a number of children's books. And uh, I think despite every children's book out there having a different sort of beginning, uh, virtually all of our sort of kids' books on our bookshelves have virtually the same ending. I bet you can tell me what it is. It's some variation on, and they lived happily ever. Yeah, you got it. That's how the story goes, and I suppose that's how the story is supposed to go. Uh, but this thing happens, I think, that the older you get, and the longer you live, uh, the gap uh, between happily ever after and what you see and experience in the world increases. Do you know what I'm talking about? The older you get and the longer you live, the gap between happily ever after and the world we live in sort of expands and the gap grows. I think you know what I'm talking about. So quick show of hands, and there are quizzes in this breakout. How many of you have any form of social media? Ready? By show of hands. I can't really see too well, so that I think is by and large most of you. Okay, uh, same show of hands. How many of you seeing something on social media at some point in the day kind of ruined your day? Yeah, similar-ish number. And it could be anything, uh, which means it's, it's, it's this particular cultural moment we live in, in that you all, by f virtue of the first show of hands, live in a generation that is way more connected than any generation before. And because of that connectedness, you feel like you know in an instant what happens here, there, or elsewhere, what happens with your friends. And what Megan and I see, and the reason for this breakout, is an increased sense of unsettledness, maybe, uh, and distress among Christians. Uh, you could call it uh, a joylessness amongst schoolwork and among some joys and highs and lows and general pervasive anxiety. That was kind of the precipitating thinking behind this, behind this workshop, is, is, is that we live in, in cultural chaos, I think you'd agree. Uh, but let me be clear, what we're going to talk about here in a moment is not how to get rid of your grief, okay? Please let me just clarify what this is and is not. There is a lot to grieve in this world. There's a lot to be sad about, and, and, a, and a sense of grief and lament is healthy and good. That's not what this breakout is. This breakout is not about how to live a carefree life where you just, you know, don't have any burdens. No, and nor is this breakout so much about, you know, this is X, Y, Z, what eternity with Christ in heaven will be like. We're, we're actually talking about that very, very little. This workshop is simply about one neglected ingredient that I think makes for peace in the way Jesus Christ offers and gives peace. And that ingredient is what the Bible says about eternity. Okay, so we're going to help you set the stage. I told you there were quizzes in this breakout. On page 20, there is a personal inventory, and this is a workshop, so we're going to workshop this together. And you don't have a lot of time, and you just have to give an honest, 
shoot from the hip answer. There are 11 questions that I want you to just engage with for, and maybe we could even, oh, the background music is gonna play. It's gonna be wonderful. If you're scared of silence, take about <laughs> three minutes, right, and go through these 11 questions. Uh, this is a moment where you can kind of begin and to set the table for self-reflection a little bit on how you engage and maybe what brought you to this workshop this morning, okay? So for the next three minutes, I want you to look at page 20 and have at it, have at it. And be honest, no one's gonna check your answers, but that's how it'll be fruitful, okay? Three minute warning. All right, we're gonna keep going, and I'm not gonna ask you to share your answers with that with me or with anyone else. <clears throat> Truly, that is, uh, uh, some of the questions that provoked us that we thought we would pass along to you to get insight on yourself, and self-reflection is hard to do at a big conference like this. We're gonna give you insights on maybe what your answers mean at the end, okay? So you gotta stay and you can't run out of the room. <laughs> we'll share with that with you later. So if you look at the outline portion of your handout on page 21, here's what we're gonna to try to talk to you about this morning. It is that, if you look at that quote from Ecclesiastes, the Bible says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That's the verse that flies as a banner over this, which means as you think about people and the world and problems, etc., if you try to compute that and to interact in the world and to kind of figure out a solution to all of those things apart from that neglected ingredient of eternity, or what we're calling an eternal perspective, it doesn't make sense. As a matter of fact, there's baked in frustration. So here's what we're gonna do for the next couple of minutes. If you see on your outline on, verse 20, uh, on, on page 21, excuse me, it says that we're gonna talk about things in two parts. First, we're gonna consider, we're gonna consider what it would look like to face death if this life is all there is. And then we're gonna shift that around to say, let's talk about facing life as if eternity is real. Got it? That's the outline for our for our breakout. Let me say that again. We're first gonna talk about facing death if this life is all that there is. We wanna introduce you to a character in the Bible who we think is very important for modern people to think about. It's on page 20. We're gonna read from 2 Kings chapter nine. And I wanna let you know that there are some vivid semi-graphic aspects of this. So this is your trigger warning, but this is in the Bible and it's helpful for us to think about. So talk about eternity, let's start in 2 Kings chapter 9. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And so she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murder of your master? And, and he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And he said... To them, throw her, that's Jezebel, down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the, horse, and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Oh, I think that's actually enough. I'm going to stop there. Uh, those verses in the Bible show a very graphic <clears throat> and sad end to a person's life. That person, her name is Jezebel, and I want to tell you a little bit about her. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is in the time of Israel's kings. Jezebel is a wicked queen. So in the Bible, Jezebel is known for killing God's prophets. Jezebel is known for living as if this world is all that there is, so she takes what she wants, when she wants, and she gets it. And needless to say, people at least usually don't name their kids Jezebel. Because of this moment, she has lived her whole life as if, well, this is it, and I suppose I am it. 
What I want you to see here is in this text, we have a very interesting record of her end-of-life scenario. And did you see verse 30 is what I want to draw your attention to. It's mostly what we want to talk to you about. It says in the Bible that the pressure of life closes in. Uh, She lived in a culture of chaos. And in a way, her wickedness has caught up with her. And there are problems all around. So what does she do? What does she do? What is her behavior? Very literally, verse 30 says, the Hebrew actually reads, she painted her eyes and she prettied up her head. There's a tremendous insight in this passage. I'm about to face death because she's lived as if this life is all there is, and she does her makeup. And she does her makeup only so that in a few verses later, she is unrecognizable because of what happens to her in her tragic end. Why does the Bible give us this picture to ponder? I think it's an important one for modern people. It talks about our distressed behavior in life if we are truly living as if this life is all there is. Yeah, and there, we want to slow down and just look at and think about two things that that image helps us understand and see. And the first, it's, it's uh, point A on your, under your first point. There's an outward adorning happening. Jezebel, she adorns herself. Dave says she's, she's brushing on eyeliner and doing her hair as she awaits her death. And it's interesting to note what she's not doing. We don't see her rectifying relationships. We don't see her calling out to her gods or the God of heaven for mercy. She doesn't focus on anything that feels like it might last beyond her. But no, what matters to her is the way she looks when she dies. Now consider that Jezebel's for her whole life, her life has been wrapped up in her glory and in her beauty and in her power. And so she plans to go to the grave, making that her final reality. Now, this is, an, this is an ancient text, but what we see here, it's relevant and it's actually common. Uh, in 2011, Lady Gaga was interviewed, and she is known uh, for her music, but also just her personality, the way she looks. And this is actually what she said about the way, uh, the way she presents herself. It's, it's that quote on the top of your outline. It's why I like fashion and style so much. I feel the ability to create an alternate fantasy and reality for myself that if I do it over and over again every single day of my life, falling asleep in my wigs, my makeup, my jewelry, my dresses, then somehow my fantasy becomes my reality. And what she's saying here, it's actually incredibly insightful into the human condition because we're all tempted to believe that our outsides define our reality, who we are. And when you live like this life is all there is, how you display yourself, it matters immensely because it defines you, how you display yourself. And and we see that today. We we live in a culture that is obsessed with physical appearance. In fact, I I read a study recently that claimed the average woman spends um, an average of $300 a month on her appearance. I don't know if you're one of them, um, and don't get me wrong, I, don't, I think makeup and clothing is awesome, but isn't it easy as people to move beyond the, I want to look nice, to I must be beautiful, that must define me. 
Now, outward adorning, though, it goes beyond even the way we look physically. That's, that's one way that our culture obsesses over it. But just like Jezebel, we want to control how am I going to be seen and known and remembered. I must be fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Smart, funny, kind, faithful, whatever it is. Um, and then just like Jezebel, we have to fight to maintain that image. And, and so maybe you find yourself hiding things from people or replaying your conversations again and again. Like, did I say that right? Maybe you slave over your homework assignments because you must make them perfect and you forfeit friends or sleep to do so. And let me tell you, that is an exhausting way to live, mm -hmm. trying to maintain this, this image that we present to the world. And, and it could be that some of the chaos and unsettledness that you feel in life has to do with this outward adorning that we see in Jezebel and we see in ourselves. So a few weeks ago, our kids had their first day of school. And for most kids, you know, their moms dress them up beautifully and have a chalkboard sign. But I forgot, like, I didn't forget about the chalkboard sign. I forgot that it was their first day of school. And so halfway through the day, the director calls me and she, she says, are, are you coming? And all of a sudden, this, this fear and this, this anxiety and this unsettledness, it washes over me as I start scrambling around the house, trying to get hair brushed and shoes on and I'm throwing chips in the lunch boxes. And even after I dropped them off, this unsettledness, this, this, this uh, anxious feeling, this worry, it stayed with me for the rest of the day. Now, now it's, what was I worried about? It's, it's not that my kids missed their morning meeting. No, it was because I deeply care about getting this whole parenting thing right. And, and that's the image that I also want to portray to other people. I want other people to also think, that I'm getting this parenting thing right. That's how I, I often want to define myself. And that started to crumble that morning. And what it led to was a whole day of anxiety and stress and worry and a deep-seated sense of, of shame. And I want you to consider when, when you're outward adorning, what it is you present to the world, when that gets shaken up, whenever you feel stressed or, or unsettled, our, our culture says, well, fix it, get through it, patch it up. But instead, I wonder, what would it look like to ask yourself, what am I trying to defend? So for me in that morning, I wanted to defend this image that I've got my act together, I get my kids on time, and they don't wear mismatched socks. What is it for you when, when your world gets shaken up, when you, when you feel that sense of, of looming unsettledness, what is it that you're trying to defend? God, in that moment, is actually being kind to you. Because what he's doing, he's showing you the futility of an outward adorning. And that leads us to the next point on your eyeline. I think it's, it's uh, B, a temporal identity. Did you notice what happened to Jezebel's beauty? We're, we're going to finish reading that passage, starting in verse 34. Then, that's Jehu, he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her... They found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. 
And then skip down to verse, verse 37. It says, And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in this territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Did you notice what happened to that beauty, to that eyeliner, to that hair? Within an hour of finishing her makeup, there is literally nothing left beyond her bones. What about her power? What about her, her influence? She was, she was used to commanding people and getting what she wants. Ironically, the very people, temporal nature to all of our outward identities. Because God has made the world so that only a few things will last forever. Much of what we give our time and our energy to, it's gonna fade, it's gonna rust, or it's going to die. And, and it reminds us when, uh, when we go to the beach in the summer, um, maybe you did this as a kid. Our kids build sandcastles, and they usually start a little bit too close to the waves. So, you know, you get, you get this tower constructed. It's starting to look pretty good. And then what happens? Well, the tide starts to come in. The waves come closer and closer, and one of the towers collapse. And so what do the kids do? They scramble around. They start rebuilding that tower. And as soon as that one gets, gets back up, Another tower, it comes crashing down, and pretty soon they just, they give up on the whole thing. But these kids, are, they're trying, <clears throat> at least for a time period, to, to hold on to this thing that they've created, to keep it and maintain it the way they, they envisioned. Now, creating a sandcastle and having it go away is no big deal. That's kind of what happens to sandcastles. That's not the problem. The problem is when you expect that that sandcastle should last. It's when you get so wrapped up in that sandcastle that when it finally fades, which it will, you are crushed. It's like grasping at something that has slipped through your fingers. Maybe you know someone uh, older than you. Maybe it's a grandpa, and they like to relive their glory days on the high school football field. What is happening? They see that slipping through their fingers, and there's this attempt to, to grasp. Do you, maybe you see that in yourself. Do you see the ways that maybe the things that you work for doesn't last? Is it possible that some of your stress or your chaos that you feel, that unsettledness in life, it's because you're trying deeply to maintain and keep something that constantly feels like it's fading. If who you are is tied up in your physical appearance and the way you show yourself on social media, well, the clothing that you bought last year it isn't in style this year. And your body is going to change and age. What if who you are, who you are, your sandcastle, it's your schoolwork, it's in your grades. Well, the A that you got on the last test, it doesn't count for the next one. You have a new test coming up. What about when your professor gives you negative feedback? Does that crush you? And even, even if you can maintain that GPA that you've always wanted, that you're known for, at what cost? Like how much of your time and your energy and your capacity do you have to give to maintain that sandcastle? What if your identity is tied up in, in who you are as a friend or as a son or, or a daughter? Well, you will face conflict. And if you don't face conflict, 
You might experience a growing bitterness. You're going to disappoint people. Expectations can't change. You'll constantly revisit how, how do they feel about me. Maybe who you are, maybe it's tied up in a political party. America will not last forever. And politicians will fail and they will change. See, when you live like this world is all that there is, you will craft an identity for self. Just like Jezebel, you will want to present yourself to the world and it will be in a way that is fragile. I'd love to just take a, just take a minute um, and, and pick just one area of life that for you feels unsettled. It, it feels, uh, you feel on edge or it feels chaotic or you just, you just can't seem to, to um, feel at peace with it. Maybe Chase, take, just take a minute and ask yourself that question. What is it in that area do you feel like you're defending? What kind of outward adorning are you trying to present the world that suddenly feels in jeopardy? Just jot down a few, a few thoughts. Take 20 seconds and go ahead and do that. I think that's a tremendous insight. So if you heard the packaging of it is, if you really believe that this world is all there is, you, you're, you're going to be tempted to construct a fragile sense of identity in the world, right? That's the insight Megan is sharing. I think that's tremendous, and I think there is a sense where you look around, and have you noticed things feel kind of tense culturally? Like, in one sense, you could say, well, I long for the days when someone would just disagree with me. It seems like disagreement is out, and just utter outrage is in. And I know it doesn't explain it in sort of a, to in a, in a total way, but I do think a part of what we see is a sense of fragile identities explaining why we feel the deep tension in the world and why things have felt so volatile, particular cultural chaos. If, if people look around, I think, and define themselves deeply, like you were saying, by this political party or that political party, and then disagreeing with that thing is to disagree with fundamentally me. Like, that's me, you just reject it, right? If this thing that I see is, 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 a, is a construction of myself, and social media, I don't, you know, older people tend to use age-defying creams and to put off death like Jezebel, but younger people who are doing, like, um, Instagram filters and presenting themselves to the world, someone once told me, well, it's, de it's more devastating if someone rejects me on social media than if they do in real life, because that's how I want to be perceived. I'm putting myself out there like this with this image, and, and that, that can even sting just as much, if not, if, not, if not more. You can tell me if that's true or not. We want to turn it here for you to our second half of this workshop. <clears throat> I think that's a very compelling image. Putting off death, putting off death, facing death as if this life is all there is. The Bible says, however, wouldn't you know, that it's, it's, it's kind of that statement should be flipped around. Just very briefly at the end here, we want to talk about facing life as if eternity is real. That's the Christian worldview. God has put eternity into your heart. Do you know that? So if you say, let's live life, Let's define myself. Let's build those sandcastles. What you will find is your life tends to self-destruct. Don't fear or face death and grab on to now. Here's the turn. We actually face life and take hold of life which is to come. Which means that what we want to encourage you to do is to say, listen to how eternity calls to you from the pages of the Bible. It's this passage from Ephesians. Okay, look at this passage here, and I just want to tease out a couple principles here which actually fundamentally are the message of the church of Jesus and are utterly life-changing. 
Here it is. Husbands, love your wives. But then he goes on to say, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So not only is eternity in your heart, but listen to this passage, friends. God has actually explained to you your eternal purpose and the, the narrative that you're meant to be swept up in. Yes, this text is addressed to husbands, but I want you to recognize that he is saying for that to happen, you need to realize something extremely epic is happening in the world, and it's way more exciting than makeup. Here it is. It's on your sheet. Do you see in this passage that Paul looks to eternity past? Paul does an ultimate throwback to eternity in the past, and he says, Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Why is that important? Megan and I play this little game sometimes um, when, when we reminisce about like our story and our romance coming together. Our anniversary is coming up, so feel free to send thank us a you, card or whatever you feel <laughs> compelled to do. But here's the game: is so the, the who liked who first game, you know. I remember you were at that thing. Were you even there? Okay, I think, you know, were you at that? Did I know? And, and who the, that's the game. Who loved who first? When we first got married, someone gave us, I think it was like a Christmas ornament that says, Dave and Megan, and it said like, established 2008. You know, this is the founding of your home, and it's the founding of your, of your, of your marriage. The who love who first thing is, is always very helpful to me because if you cast that vertical into your relationship with God, you get a very, very amazing answer. Yeah, who loved who first? You are not calling out to God in your sinful state. No, no, no. The Bible is absolutely crystal clear. When did Jesus love you? Well, look at the passage. Paul, when he says that Jesus loves the church, that he's alluding to what's on your sheet there in Ephesians 1. Look at this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So do you see what he's saying? Jesus has set his affection on his people before the foundation of the world. When was this whole established, you being a Christian thing? Eternity passed. Eternity passed. This whole you being a believer in Jesus has deep roots, and it's called a robust sense of identity. It's called being in Christ. So before America was a nation, man, do you know God formed a people for himself? That's an epic story, right? Before social media was a phenomenon, redemption was in the mind of God. And before people started to identify as I'm this or I'm that or this is the self-sense of identity or said this is my race in this expression or in that and this is what title I claim for myself, before people identified as anything, God marked out people as being in Christ. And what a wonderful thought that is. It's, it's what we see as a neglected ingredient. It's called a Christian eternal identity. Before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer in Jesus, that's your story. It is not a temporal identity that Megan was talking about. You could talk about it as a super or a trans-temporal identity. It's an eternity narrative. And that is necessary for peace. And increasingly, your generation is in a time where people are, you're deeply encouraged to look around and to find a camp to most identify with so that you can villainize another group. And what I'm saying is the Bible's message, if 
that eternity is set in your heart to define yourself as being a part of the people of God. You are in Christ. In Christ, that's eternity past. The second thing is that we see a historical fact. Do you notice that? So here's the narrative. We see that Jesus gave himself up. Yes, so if you come into our home, you will walk into a sea of noises. Like someone is hammering away at the piano and someone's having a very vocal pillow fight. And one of the things that we want our kids to be able to do is amidst all the noise is to listen to the voice of their parents. And you too live in a world of noise, don't you? Entertainment and advertisements and classwork and people's opinions and and, and everything is calling out to you. It's noisy and it all says, worry about me, worry about me, I am important. But what this verse says, uh, verse 25, it says that there is a historical fact, something that is rooted in all of history, and all of history is, is circles around that should speak louder to any, than any other noise or voice that calls out to you. And it's this, that Jesus Christ has given himself up for you. It's more important th- than what you wear, or who doesn't like you, or what your GPA is, or who the president is, or even what sort of suffering you might find yourself in. That single truth, that steady, unchanging fact, Jesus gave himself up for you. It cuts through the chaos and noise, and it reminds us, this is what God is doing. This is what matters. And I'd encourage you, set your mind on that truth, because Don't our minds wander? Don't we listen to the loudest thing? Things call out for us every day. But this historical fact, it often whispers. It often whispers. And so we set our mind on what is true. So when the world feels in shambles and and what's gonna happen to our country, Jesus gave himself up. Uh, but, but what if I never have the job that I want or, or the income I want or the health I want? And, and what if there is unimaginable suffering in my future? Well, Jesus gave himself up. And when you have a million papers that are due on Monday and you're at a conference and you have no time to do them, Jesus gave himself up. Mm-hmm. Jesus gave himself up. And, and as you rehearse that fact, knowing that, that is the pathway to peace. Letter C on your outline says there's also, Paul says that there's an amazing present. Okay, if you've zoned out, now's the time to zone back in. Because if Jezebel is standing there painting her face, you ever wonder, why the heck is that in the Bible? She's looking and knocking on death's door. Let's put this off as long as possible. Look at verse 26. It says that, speaking of Jesus, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Okay, so remember Jezebel beautifying herself in this godless way. Let's put on some makeup. Let's put on some makeup. You know, you're supposed to look at that passage, I think, and say, well, wait a minute. The Bible says that Christians are also getting ready. 
The Bible says that Christians are also beautifying themselves. There is an adorning for you that is extremely important that is going on right now, and it's actually the most exciting current or narrative in the church of Jesus. It's not an outward adorning. It is an inward adorning. It's called being sanctified. This is what the Bible says here. It says the church we read here is getting ready. It's getting ready because God cares that you are increasingly cleansed and that blemishes are removed from you. So what Jordan talked about this morning, that God has reached down and rescued you and saved you in a way. God has taken care of his problem with you because the wrath of God has been satisfied. But God still has to take care of your problem with him, which is that all of those areas in your life, right now, the chaos of our world, for those in Jesus, God is using all of those things to craft you and to mold you into the likeness of his son, Jesus. I was privileged not long ago to hear a woman who was in, a, in, in deep cancer treatment talk about what it is like for her as a Christian woman to face the pain, and not only of our culture, but of cancer. And, and for her, it was moving to me. She's been somewhat of a, of a help and mentor to me because I can quote you exactly what she said. She talks about receiving cancer treatments and infusions and, you know, she's lost all of her hair. And she says it's such a parable for how for her whole life God has used everything, including cancer, to get her ready to meet God. So she says, I gladly submit to this infusion he says, because for my whole life, I've been joyfully submitting to all of God's infusions to prepare me, to sanctify me, to cleanse me, to, so that I'm beautified to meet Jesus Christ. That was like a breath of fresh air. And I think that's somebody who understands peace. There are good causes in our world, brothers and sisters. Please make no mistake about it. But our culture is obsessed with how everything is presented and warring for something right now. Here's this woman with an inward beauty. Have you met mentors like that? Where there's a robust sense of identity in Christ, and they know that the pressure of this life, those areas that you just thought about where you feel squeezed and anxious, and I don't know what's happening, and all of that is working for an inward adorning and for your good if you belong to Jesus. So there is heartbreak, there is pain. Please do not hear me downplaying or making light of any distress. But you come through those things more ready to meet Jesus. And the last thing is this. Notice that Paul points to eternity ahead. Eternity ahead. See, he's done past. See, he's done history. He's done present. And now he's going to talk about eternity in the future. God has put eternity into the hearts of men. What's God's glorious plan? You have to take hold of verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Can I say that again? So that he might present the church, that's you if you belong to Jesus, if, this is, if you're part of the people of God, to himself, present in splendor. The church is going to be presented. It's not a stretch to say you are going to walk down the aisle to meet Jesus. In future tense, in future tense, but it's future tense, yet it is a done deal. I get to do a lot of weddings as a pastor. It's a lot of fun. Very much recently, I was doing that. And you know what the, the most fun part about, certainly it was for our wedding and for any wedding, is there's so much money 
and anticipation and stress. But that all sense sort of melts away when the bride and groom are standing up front and they're staring at one another and there's this joy because this is the moment, right? You are the person that I've labored for. I've kind of forgotten in all of the stress of life that it was for this moment and it was for this person for the rest of my life. And that is God's chosen image for you to recognize where all of this is going. And the church of Jesus has always triumphed in difficult, hard situations all the time. Where is this all heading? It's the chosen image of a wedding, of the people of God being presented to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the awkwardness and the stress and the suffering that you have and the wounds that you feel and all those things you're like, I'm just going to quit, right? The world is a scary place. Let's just not get out of bed. Well, those times when you've chosen to honor God more than give in to sin, that's moving somewhere, and perhaps we do not talk about this enough. It is that when you close your eyes in death, you will walk down the aisle to meet your Savior. And you bring all of the pain and all the suffering that you've endured, and you said, man, life was hard. It felt like not peace. And he will say to you, you are the one I've labored for. You are the one I've labored for. And that's what I'm going to call... An eternity narrative. That is the message that has been entrusted to the people of God, which is why Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace in a way that the world does not and cannot give you peace. So maybe we could end where we started because we're kind of out of time. As Christians, how do, we, how do we end the kids' books, right? Is it happily ever after? That sounds a little bit glib, I suppose. Is it, well, we're going to live happily ever after. Perhaps what I want to hold up to you is that as a Christian, how to have peace in a world of chaos is you say not happily ever after. You, you cling to that you are secure in the purposes of God. You're secure in the purposes of God. So let me pray, and then we'll talk about the quiz and give you a couple insights and a moment of reflection. Our Father, we thank you for this message that has been entrusted to us, that we can be defined as being in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is in a season of distress and dismay as they look around at their lives or, the fam- or their families or the world. Would you draw close to them and give them news and cheer their spirits with the best news in the world? Thank you that before the foundation of the world, you chose and brought in a people for yourself to adopt. Would that mean much to us? Would we herald this news and define ourselves by it despite whatever calling you call us to? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I bet you're wondering about page 20, aren't you? Okay. Maybe the type A people are. Maybe other people are like, I don't really care. Uh, We just wanted to give you a couple of insights on this. Again, this is not a slam dunk, and our goal is not to pigeonhole you, but this is a moment for self-reflection. That's why it's a workshop. Yep. Yeah, so take a look at your answers. Take a look particularly at number one and number nine. My friends would describe me as generally happy and content. Number nine, I sometimes pretend as if there is nothing wrong, even though there is. And once again, this is not meant to be diagnostic, just some ideas. If both of those, if you circle both of those as high, that could be an indication that there is a desire of yours to present yourself as 
Nothing's ever wrong. I've got my act together. That's a, that is an outward adorning that you might have. And it, and it could be actually preventing you from, particularly if number four, I typically know and can articulate how I'm feeling if that's low. Yeah, it, it could be that you, you, you don't even, you don't want to pretend that anything is, is wrong. You don't even know what's wrong. And that, that's the, the um, persona that you want to you wanna display. If you look Do at numbers uh, three, five, and 11, uh, 3, 5, and 11, uh, and again, please don't hear me hating on social media. I, I do use it myself. There's my confession for the morning. Uh, if you look at 3, 5, and 11, I think if those tend to be very, very high, um, I think that could be an, at least an opportunity to think and reflect, what have you opened yourself up to, to that perhaps could become a primary identity narrative? You know what I'm saying? So in other words, if that is a huge sense of intake for you, um, it, it's at least worth considering, what am I normally defending in life? Are you, are you kind of the social media warrior, which isn't inherently bad, but it can refer, it can often indicate that your primary sense of identity is not in Christ, but, but could be something else. Number six and number four, maybe you could just glance at those real quick. Those are meant to go together. I typically know and can art articulate how I'm feeling. I have time set aside every day to think, pray, and reflect uh, on the truths of God. Uh, I don't know your heart, but man, for me, increasingly in a chaos culture, those are deeply necessary things to do. So much so that if, if, if you struggle to know how you are articulating and feeling, number four, and number six is also low, you don't have time, uh, that, I, I'd be curious who you're hearing from. All right, I'd, I'd be curious who you're, who you're, who you're hearing from. Uh, number eight and ten, very quickly, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end here. Uh, number eight says, I sometimes try to do it all. Uh, number 10 talks about my sense of worth comes from. I think you see where those questions, your, those questions are going. Uh, if you're kind of the busy person, number eight and number 10, I, I would be willing to guess that there's a, there's a strong sense of, like Megan's story of if life feels falling apart or if people think you're incompetent, that can just be very undoing for you. I bet there are areas of stress and, and, and unrest that you could discern and reflect on uh, in there. Yeah, and this is really meant to be a tool. So if you're like, oh my goodness, wow, that I circled 10 that I feel anxious all the time. That's just a great thing to just talk to a friend about and say, help me, help me understand how I could pursue knowing and having this eternal narrative of what God is doing in the world as a pathway to personal peace. I thought about the discontentment or contentment and shame are also involved in this little inventory. Uh, discontentment meaning, I just feel like something's wrong. I feel like something's wrong. feels yeah. like something's wrong. For me, that's number 11. If I constantly am opening up this same app on my phone, like 5, 10, 50, and I'm like, I have already checked the news. There's nothing more in my email, whatever that is for you. That often, not always, it could be an opportunity to reflect on whether there's a sense of contentment and peace or if there's sort of, sort of something new. Number nine is really meant to access the idea of shame. Mm -hmm. And it's also meant to access this idea of, of, of pride. It might be a helpful one to think about. If you're a pretender, if you like to think about how you project, this could be a wonderful day for you to turn to the Lord and to ask that he would fill you with a sense of trust and peace because of who he is and what he's done for you. Define yourselves as being a part of the people of God. Hey, we are out of time. It is exactly 12.15. Thank you for joining us. If you have questions, we're going to linger at the top. God bless you guys. You're dismissed.